Well, thank you, Doug, for our prayer tonight, and thank you for all of you for being with us. We turn our time and our attention now to the book of Job, and I'd given you some uh, questions, and I thought I would spend just a few moments reviewing chapter 4 and chapter 5. My lesson tonight will begin in chapter 6, and it's my intention to cover 6 and 7, so I'll have to really talk fast in order to get in order to get that uh, uh, done. But let me review a question or two. If you have your um, uh, questions, if you need questions, there are out, some out there in the, uh, in the foyer. And I'll just not go over all of them, of course, but I would like to go over just one or two. Um, I, let me just start with number one. The question number one reads, Job's first friend, and you understand that to be Eliphaz, finally speaks and begins to cry to help, uh, try to help Job find some particular explanation for his difficulties. What is the first major concern of Eliphaz? And I've noted for you verse 2. What was Eliphaz and his concern? Who has that one? Right, thank you, Darla. You... He says, now, Job, will you be patient? You've been the one that's been counseling so many people, and now the situation is turned, the tables are turned, you need to be patient. Are you going to listen, or are you just going to um, uh, be hard-headed and take, uh, take my advice, even though you've given advice uh, to other people? Uh, there's an interesting question I posed in number four. Eliphaz reminds Job that his condition is from what? Six and seven. What does God not do, according to Eliphaz, belief uh, to good people? Uh, who has that one for me? Anybody? Yes, sir. Only good things happen to good people. That's basically the approach Eliphaz has. In fact, in some form or another, all of these friends, these three friends, are going to make that argument in some fashion. Good guys always win, and only bad guys suffer. And that, of course, is very much the part of Eliphaz and his position. Um, but also, this point in 6 and 7, that uh, he should have confidence in God, is his point in verse 6 and 7 with regard to Job. Job did have confidence in God, and that was one of the points that we've made. And that is that... Um, uh, some things that these men will say are truthful, as we're going to learn tonight, but they don't necessarily apply to Job. And so Job's uh, suffering is not due to any sin on Job's part. And you'll remember what we learned about Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 and God's view of Job. But their view of Job, that is his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, their view of Job is your sinner. And you've got to be a bad sinner in order to be suffering the way you are suffering. So you really are bad. Now you might as well go ahead and admit it and repent of it and God will bless you. Now that's much of what he is saying. Uh, I thought it was a rather cruel comment that Eliphaz makes down there in about verse 9 and 10 and it's my question 6. What two figures of speech did Eliphaz use to show how God, as Eliphaz sees it, treated the wicked? Verse 9 and 10. Well, what about the lions? Notice about the lions and the teeth and the lion's whelps in verse 9 and 10. 
the teeth of the young lions are broken. And then, of course, there is the lion's whelp, uh, the young lions that uh, have lost. And I guess that's verse 11 that I'm thinking about, 10 and 11. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. And he has reference to his own children there. That is, Job's children. Your children have died. I thought it was a very cruel kind of statement uh, for him to, um, to make. Uh, let's see. I'm going to go on to, uh, for time's sake, unless you have a question about any of my questions here. Let's go to chapter 5, and I have a number of questions chapter 5, and because it is a rather lengthy section, both 4 and 5, we'll make a comment or two about question 10. One of the things that you cannot uh, trust in, even God doesn't trust in who? That is angels, uh, uh, which is Eliphaz's view. That's not God's view. That's Eliphaz's view, and these are the holy ones that he's mentioning over here in verse 1 and verse 2. 2 and 3, how does the evil and foolish man sometimes cause his, uh, this, his own downfall? Well, Eliphaz views Job as a foolish man, and he listened to Job's uh, soliloquy in chapter 3, and he says that he speaks as a foolish man, and Job uh, will die rather than be healed, a lot of it because of his attitude. And then again, the loss of his children and the loss of his wealth is referenced in chapter 5, verse 4 through 6. He says, now his sons are far from safety. They are even opposed in the gate, and there is no deliverance. His harvest, the hungry devour, and take it to a place of thorns. And the scheme of ang- uh, schemer is eager for their wealth, their affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. You and I talked about that last time, and basically he's referring to the fact that Job's lost all of his wealth. He's lost all of his assets, lost all of his um, uh, material goods, lost his children, and this doesn't just happen by chance. That's his reference to the dust of the ground. For affliction does not come from the dust. That's verse 6. He's saying it just doesn't haphazardly come. Well, I got news for Eliphaz. Oh, yes, it does. Sometimes it haphazardly comes our way, even though we didn't do anything to deserve it, and um, it just happens to be that uh, case. Uh, We live in a world, a sin-sick, sin-saturated world, and because of that, people suffer. And some of that suffering is random in nature. I think I'll go down to question 10. If you were to sum up Eliphaz's position on why Job is suffering and, why he can, and what he can do to alleviate it, what would you say? All right, I'm going to open up the floor and let you uh, help me answer that particular question. What would you like to say on that? All right, if he'd turned to God, uh, he'd receive the blessings of God. That's certainly part of it. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, now, do you think that's true? If you turn to God, God will bless you? Not always. Yeah. It's untrue to think that Job wasn't like that. Job was. 
That's true. The application to Job is false. He's made a misapplication with regard to Job. But if I am faithful to God, will God bless me? The answer to that is yes. He's going to bless me. I say that's the problem. A lot of truth is being expressed here, but it doesn't apply properly to Job. Uh, what other truth can we uh, say or what else sums up uh, Eliphaz and his argumentation here? What about the fact that man is mortal and that man is made of clay and that man is not long for this earth? That's a truth. Uh, Eliphaz makes that point in this particular chapter. And another point that Eliphaz makes with regard to God is that God is transcendent. That is true. God is not right here. God is transcendent. He transcends the world. He is above and beyond the world. He's not in the world. He's above and beyond the world. And he makes the case in this particular chapter, chapter 5, that God is transcendent. That is true. But yet God is not so far away from Job that he does not know and understand Job's predicament and his situation. Somebody else? Yes, sir. Nobody. Anybody? Anybody got a comment? Um, now let's talk about this point about suffering for sin. Job's suffering is the result of sin. Now that was false. And of course that's his point here, that you're suffering because you're a sinner. And that's a false supposition. Uh, Job is not suffering because he's a sinner. Do sinners suffer? Yes, they do. Sometimes we bring the suffering on ourselves. Innocent people can suffer. We bring that upon ourselves sometimes. Sometimes we don't bring it upon ourselves, it just happens. And so we can't just universally say that because a person sins, then he's automatically going to suffer. Uh, he made a point here, and I don't have uh, the opportunity really now to um, uh, spend a lot of time with it. We talked about it last time. But the fact that um, man cannot be pure before God, and he makes that particular point right through this particular section. And that, of course, is not true. One can be pure and righteous before God by being faithful and doing the will of God. So as I went through the chapter, I got six points that sum summarizes Eliphaz and what he's saying to Job in his first speech. Now I'm ready to go to chapter six. Chapter six. And you have questions on 6 and 7. This is Job's reply to Eliphaz. Job's reply to Eliphaz. A lot of material here in chapter 6 and 7. And in the first part of this chapter, Job defends his complaint. You heard the complaint in chapter 3. He defends his complaint. Oh, that my grief were actually weighed. Now, it's interesting the way he puts it here. Very poetic way. He says, you know, if it were on a scale, if you had all the sand of the seashore, and generally sand on the seashore is what? It's, it's wet, right? That makes it heavier. If you had all that on one, one pan of the scales, and my grief on the other, my grief would outweigh the sand of the seashore. Let's watch for that. And laid in the balances together with my calamity, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison, uh, their poison, my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. So he's feeling now like God is doing this to him. And he's saying now it's like poison arrows 
that God has shot at me, and it's just filled my spirit with this. He says, does the wild donkey bray over his grass, or does the ox low over his fodder? And he's saying, you know, when things are going good, nobody complains, but things aren't going good. And so I'm complaining about this, and I have a right to complain, I think is somewhat his point here. Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? Verse 6, my soul refuses to touch them. They are like loathsome food to me. Well, there's probably several points that are uh, involved in his statements there, but he's saying food just is detestable to me. I can't stand it. I don't want to have any uh, part to do with it. Uh, this is his complaint now. He justifies his complaint, verses 1 through 7. I'm in chapter 6, and I'm looking at Job's response, and I'm at about verse 8. And he talks now more about his despair and how terrible. He thought God was the source of his uh, trouble here. And he's talking about God shooting poisonous arrows into him. And that's the first part of this paragraph. And um, it's filled his spirit with and his body with poison. Oh, that my request might come to pass, verse 8, and that God would grant my longing. Now, he's going to make that over and over and over again. And Job's point in this is simply this. If I could just get a chance to get up there before God and lay my case before him, he would see that I'm innocent and that he would, you know, remove the suffering. He would eliminate the suffering. He wants that. He feels like if he could just make his case before God, God will see what's going on and that God will say, okay, you've been, you've been suffering and you shouldn't suffer. Two points about that now. Number one, he's still claiming his innocence. He said, if I could just get my case before God, he's going to say I'm innocent. So he continues this case of being innocent. I'm not suffering uh, just so. This is not equitable. This is not proper that I be suffering the way that I am because I haven't done anything to deserve this. And Eliphaz, your point about the righteous, only the wicked suffer just isn't true uh, because I have not done anything in order to justify this kind of treatment. And two, the second point comes to my mind about this is he's going to get his chance. As you get to the latter portion of the book of Job, the chance comes up. But guess what? Job says, um, you know what? I said a bunch of things I shouldn't have said. <laughs> when it comes before God, God comes to him. God said, I got some questions for you. And he says, you know, I spoke way out of turn. I should have never said what I said. And then uh, God gives him a whole series of questions which nobody can answer. Nobody. And we'll get to that as time goes along. But I think it's pretty important to reinforce the point, that being that he wants his case to be sent before God. He wants his opportunity to stand before God, and he's going to get it. I'm in verse 9. Would that God were willing to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. I wish God just put me to death because I'm suffering so much. Now, he uses vivid language here. The idea of crush, you have, that's what this English translation uh, translates it as. Crush really has the idea of set me free from this. Oh, that I could be crushed. Set me free. How? By putting me to death. Just go ahead and crush me and set me free. But notice also how he says that in very poetic language, cut me off. And it goes back to a verb which conveys the idea of a seamstress taking uh, uh, scissors, I guess, or a knife or something and cutting the 
string off the garment, cut me off and cast me away. We got a little bit of extra string left. They cut it off and throw it away. That's what you ought to do to me. Oh, that God would do me that way. Cut me off and then loose my, uh, loose his hand, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. But it is still my consolation and I rejoice in uh, unsparing pain that I have not denied the word of the Holy One, verse 10. Even though I have faced excruciating pain continually, I have never denied the Lord. I've never denied God. I've always been faithful to him. But the question is, how can I keep going? How can I keep going on this? We've got Job's response to Eliphaz. Now, what would you say if some of your friend came along and said, well, it's because you're a terrible sinner. That's the reason you're suffering the way you are. And Job has this very inspired uh, explanation with regard to the suffering that he's going through. Um, and then I think by verse 12, he says, is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Eliphaz, what do you expect me to do here? And that's a pretty good question. Uh, you know, what am I supposed to do in the face of all this? Um, he's saying, Eliphaz is saying, you need to repent uh, of the sin that you've committed. But there's nothing to repent of. Is it that my help is not within me? Verse 13. And that deliverance is driven from me? Um, how can anybody help me? I have no resources here to help. There's, there's nothing here to help me. I have no resources. I have no place to go. Uh, the only place he has is to go to God. And he wants to go to God. And he wants his uh, opportunity to be heard before God. Now, poor Job doesn't realize God knows all about this. God knows all about the suffering. He knows all of the whys and the wherefores, the ifs and ands and the buts about it. He knows everything about the matter. But this man's living in the twilight age. That is a very, very early patriarchal period of time in which uh, he doesn't understand everything about God like we do. And we don't understand everything about God either, do we? But we have a lot more information about God in the pages of the Bible and the New Testament that Job was not privy to. And so he's saying, you know, I don't have any place to go. And that deliverance is driven from me. There is no way that I can get relief from the suffering that I am going through. Now I'm in verse 14. I'm in Job chapter 6. And um, uh, I'm looking at a paragraph now where he's summarizing. I'll try to summarize what he says in 14 through 23. And he's saying in this particular passage, was, you know, this Hebrew poetry, it's not the easiest thing to study or to read. But he's saying, I really am disappointed in you, Eliphaz, as a friend. I'm really disappointed here. I needed a friend, I needed a counselor, and you have not been a friend or a counselor to me. I'm very disappointed. So he's disappointed in his friends, verses 14 through 23. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. There should be loyalty, commiseration, comfort, consideration. Where's the kindness? There ought to be some of that with regard to a friend that would help him so that he will not forsake, uh, forsake God. And there hasn't been any comfort. Now, what are these friends like? My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi. Now, I don't know how your translation translates that. I'm in verse 15. A wadi is a, 
what we would call back home a wet weather spring. In other words, it had water, water flowed in the wadi in the rainy season, but in the dry season it's gone. There's no water and it's all dry. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden there's a flood down south because here it does, it's working its way down through. But, you know, it's not permanent. There's nothing that you can depend on with regard to a wadi. Now you can see the point he's making with regard to his friends. You guys, undepend you know, I can't depend upon you guys. You guys are like a wadi. It runs in the good days, but in the bad days there's nothing there to nourish and support uh, life. Like the torrents of wadis which vanish, uh, which are turbid because of ice, darkened and filled, you see. They're is filled with uh, the ice and into which the snow melts. When they become waterless, they are silent. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. Now he's telling, telling us a lot about the culture and the day of the time, but he's applying this to his friends and he's saying, I am disappointed in you guys. You guys are not helping me at all. The paths of their course wind along. Now he's talking about the caravans. The caravans would go from place to place and they're looking for water. As they would go in their commerce, they were taking all kinds of commerce and selling them and transporting them from place to place. In fact, this translation uses caravan in verse 19. The caravans of Tema looked. The travelers of Sheba hoped for them. These caravans looked for water, and they couldn't find it. And sometimes caravans would perish in the desert. Now, we got the Arabian desert here. That's a pretty bad desert. Uh, and so they were looking for water any kind of water to sustain life. That's like you guys. I'm like the caravan. I'm looking for help. I'm looking for help. And what are you guys like? You're like a wadi. You're like a river that's got no water in it whatsoever. Tima would be northern Arabia, and Sheba would be southwestern Arabia, Arabian desert. And so he's talking about the paths. This translation uses the paths of their course wind along. So the caravans are traveling, and they're looking, they're looking and searching for water, they're searching for water, but they can't find water, and that's the way you friends are with regard to me. Um, you're just no help to me at all in this terrible situation. And in verse 20, they were disappointed for they had trusted. They came there and were confounded. Indeed, you have now become such. You see a terror and are afraid. You're like the wadi. The wadi, at least, had, they had hope. The caravan had hope to find water. and that. But, you know, they looked and looked and couldn't find it. And that's the way you guys are. Now, sir. All right. Um, should we help? Do you, would you like someone to help you? And You're all right right now? Okay, now if you have a problem, let me know, okay? Uh, and we'll have somebody help you. Um, let's see, I'm in verse 20, and I was making the application toward his friends. Indeed, you have now become such, you see a terror and are afraid. Well, they look at him, and they see the terrible situation which he's in, and they're afraid. They're afraid to help him. And so that's the point of his um, uh, comment about them. Have, have I said, give me something? Now in verse 22, 
he's bringing up the point. You know, have I given you a bribe? Have I asked anything of you? Um, have I asked you to say or do something uh, that would help me like a bribe might be produced? Have I said, give me something or offer a bribe for me from your wealth or deliver me from the hand of the adversary or redeem me from the hand of your tyrants? I haven't asked anything from you and all you've given me is more suffering and distress. Okay, now by the time I'm in verse 24 and 30, I'm trying to move it along here. Um, he's talking about all three of them. He's not just talking about Eliphaz, and I probably should make that point. That uh, teach me and I will be silent. Show me how I have erred, how painful are honest words. But what does your argument prove? The your is you all, your plural. And so he's saying now, you all, this particular discussion now is directed toward all the friends, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz. Now, tell me plainly what I need to do. I don't care if it's, um, I don't care if it's a painful explanation. I don't care if it's something that is really hard to take. I could benefit from straight talk and straight advice in this particular matter. Teach me and I will be silent and show me how I have erred. In verse 25, how painful are honest words, but what does your argument prove? And so again, he's talking about all three of the friends. But what he wants is, shoot it to me straight. Tell me the straight of it and help me get what I need, the information that I need. But what you're giving me right now is of no value. You're not helping me. So really, Job is asking for help here. He's asking for help from his friends, but they don't have him. They don't have any words to help him. Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? Um, how, uh, let's see, I'm um, reading 27. You would even cast lots <laughs> for the orphans and barter over their friend. Now please look at me and see if I lie to your face. Desist now. Let there be no injustice. In other words, turn or change from this attitude. Even desist. My righteousness is yet in it. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern calamity? Basically, he's saying understanding. Can I understand the flow of this suffering? That's chapter... Six, chapter six, pretty powerful response from Job and a lot of information is being given there. Now I went over it rather quickly because of the time element that I've got, but uh, let's talk a little bit about it. We've got some time here. Let's talk and see what we can make of it. Who has a question about this? Basically you have four points in chapter 6, 1, he defends his complaint. The complaint was back in chapter 3. Now that's the first part of chapter 6, 1 through 7. Then secondly, he is in despair over his suffering. That's that second paragraph. Starts at about verse 8 and goes through verse 13. He is disappointed in his friends. And that's in about verse 14 through 23. And then his plea... To the, to the three counselors 
is tell me straight what I need to know in order for me to eliminate the problem that I have. So those are the four points that he's got in this particular chapter. It's written in very poetic type language, but yet at the same time it's very powerful. All right, somebody have a question or a comment for me? Yes, sir. Right. But he doesn't know Satan is doing this. While on the other hand, his friends think he's a very bad person. That's the dilemma we're in here. Yeah. That's the dilemma we're in. The three friends don't know what they're talking about. Job doesn't understand the situation. And so that's the problem that we're facing. No, they have not. It's of no value to him. They really don't understand themselves. Now, they talk like they do. If you go back to that chapter 5, and look how Eliphaz said this in verse 27. Behold this, we have investigated it, and so it is. Hear it and know for yourself. We know what we're talking about. No, they don't. And so Job is trying to tell them, you are no help to me. You don't know what you're talking about. You're not going through the suffering. Now, in a sense, I can see Job's point because you don't really know what it's like till you go through it yourself. And this is a problem that Job is facing. He's going through it. They're not going through it. How can they really understand? How can they really relate to what Job is having to say? Or somebody comes along and says, well, I know how you feel. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Uh, you don't really know or appreciate the suffering that someone goes through until you go through suffering yourself. And so that certainly is the problem, I think, that we have here in this discussion. All right, someone else. That's a good point to bring up. Somebody else have another point? Anybody? Wayne? Um, you want me to ask you a question then? Yeah, yeah, right. And I think a big part of this uh, paragraph is how bad the suffering really is. So we saw it in chapter 3. Now, I call chapter 3 the most depressing chapter in the Bible. But now he goes back to that, chapter 3, in this second paragraph, telling us just how terrible the suffering really is. Please turn me loose. He, uh, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Turn me loose from this. The turn me loose is conveying the idea, let me die. But he doesn't understand anything about life after death. Um, he doesn't understand the situation that exists between God and him and Satan. And so he really is at a loss. He's an innocent sufferer. And that's the point of this book. Why do the innocent suffer? Yeah, where do, where do you go? And then and Eliphaz says, don't depend on angels because even God doesn't trust the angels. That's not true, but that's what Eliphaz said. 
And don't depend upon God, because who can stand righteous before God? And so he's really cut off all source of help with regard to Job or any avenue that he might go to in order to receive help. Now I'm in chapter 7. Let me talk about the latter portion of Job's uh, uh, speech back to Eliphaz. And we really have sort of the pattern of the misery and the suffering that he goes through. And he brings up this point about the slave. He says, well, is not man forced to labor on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired man, as a slave who pants for the shade, and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages? So, you see how they put that? That's a conclusion. So here's the point. So. So can mean just about anything in English. But here it functions as a conclusion. This is the point that I'm trying to make. Am I allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed me? And they put the period there at the end of that verse. So what's he saying? You know, even a slave who has to work all day long in the hot sun looks forward to the day or the time of the day when there's some shade and he can rest. But I don't get any rest. Even a slave who has to work in the hot sun all day long gets to rest. And, and a workman, a hireling, well, he works all day long and he looks forward to the day when he will be paid and payday for him is a big day. I don't get that. I'm not getting anything like that. I'm even worse than the hireling. I'm worse than the slave because I get no comfort. I get no relaxation whatsoever from this dilemma, the plight that I'm in. And as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages, so am I allotted months of vanity. I don't get any wages. I don't get any benefit. I don't see I don't see any help from this. Job's condition. Uh, when I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues, and, and I'm continually tossing until dawn. Now, I'm going to wait a second about verse 5. I make a comment about verse 4 as I try to understand what he's saying there. And he's saying, you know, I'm awake all night long, and I could, oh, man, I wish... The day would get here. When is the day going to get here? When is the light going to get here? And then the light gets here and I still suffer. I'm not going to be, I'm not, I don't get any relief. Even though I suffer all day, I suffer all night. There's no relief whatsoever from this. Now verse 5, my flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. So now you have a pretty disgusting picture of the suffering that he's going through and the symptoms. I mean, these cancerous type sores, running sores, have been clotted. Uh, dust and dirt are upon him. He paints a pretty loathsome kind of picture here in verse 5. My flesh is clothed with worms. Well, because of the flies and that kind of thing that have uh, corrupt, and then the corruption, the uh, oozing of the fluids, the bodily fluids of, so, of source is uh, coming from. It's a loathsome picture. Yes, sir. It's hard to be Well, no, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, nobody, he didn't understand anything. Right, right. Yeah. And it's hard to be reasonable when you're in such pain, isn't it? I think you're exactly right about that. And that... That's what he's going through right now. He is in desperate physical condition. 
And that desperate physical condition is described for us in 5 and 6. And he tells us how brief life really is. And you'll hear this passage a lot at funerals. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. Uh, but what Job is saying in this context is, you know, I'm about to die. I'm on the very verge of death, and I have no hope of ever getting better. So he says in verse uh, 7, I think the attitude changes just a little bit here, and I should point that out. Remember that my life is but breath. My eye will not again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. Now, I notice that he used the word I three times in that text, verse 7 and verse 8. And basically he's saying is, my life is short, I'm about to die, and I'm never going to get over this. I have no opportunity for help. My life is a short life. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone, verse 9. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. Now see, he doesn't understand. Sheol, of course, is the place of the un, uh, unseen spirits, the dead. The equivalent to that in the New Testament would be Hades in the Hadean world. Sheol in the Old Testament, Hades in the New Testament, and it is the plight of the dead, life's other side, Sheol. And he says, now, I go to Sheol, I will not come up. Now, he doesn't understand that. We understand for our, from the pages of the New Testament that we will be raised from the dead when Christ comes again, and that we who are prepared will go and be with him in eternity in heaven. But he doesn't have the benefit of that knowledge. And his attitude about it is, it's all over for me. I have nothing to look forward to. There's no value to me whatsoever. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. Verse 10. Verse 10. So I have verse 11. And what does he do in verse 11? He starts talking directly to God. Up to this time, he's been talking to Eliphaz. And we've seen the plural personal pronouns where he was talking to both Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. But now, now he's going to talk to God. And he talks to God directly. Verse 11. Let's see what he says. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I'm going to complain to God. I'm going to tell him. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Verse 12. Am I the sea of the sea monster that you get, that you set a guard over me? Are you constantly observing me and constantly putting the pressure on me? And he's saying this to God. He's saying, are, are you constantly harassing me? And looking at me and picking me out and doing this for me, you, that you set a guard over me? Verse 13, if I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions. I don't get any rest. If I do go to sleep, I'm terrified by the visions and the dreams that I'm going through. Have you picked me out to harass me? Now, I probably need to say this as we get deeper into the book. 
and that is, Job's going to say some pretty tough things. Job's going to say some pretty hard things. But it goes back to two things here. Number one, it's hard to be reasonable when you're suffering. Number two, he maintains sufficient faith in God to be pleasing to God. His faith is being tested. It's being tried. And you can see the trial of his faith as he goes through these particular comments. And he's talking to God. And he's saying, of course, you and I know God's not harassing him. You and I know God knows all about this. He's not made a target out of him, but he doesn't understand that. So I'm going to make my point again. He's going to say some hard things. As you get deeper into the book and the suffering continues to be more protracted, then, of course, you're going to find that he says harder things toward God. But he maintains sufficient faith to be pleasing in the sight of God. He says in verse 15, so that my soul would choose suffocation death rather than my pains, I waste away. I will not live forever. Life's short. And basically what he's going to say here, if you're going to point sin out in me and forgive me, you better hurry up because I'm about to die. If you're going to forgive me, do it now and do it quick because it's just about over. Leave me alone, verse 16, for my days are but a breath. Have a man, uh, what is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him that you examine him every morning and try him every moment, verse 19. Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? Now notice that, verse 20. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself, verse 21? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. And it's almost being sarcastic to God. Almost. Because he's saying, if you're going to forgive me and forgive my sin, my transgression, you better hurry up because I'm going to die and I'm not going to be here for you to kick around anymore. It's almost being sarcastic to God. The poor man has gone through so much, he's reached that particular level of suffering that he's talking that way. However, I want to emphasize again, Job had not sinned. Job did not consider, God did not consider him to be sinful. He maintains his integrity, and he wants to know, what did I do? Verse 20, 21, and he uses three words there. He uses the word sinned, transgression in 21, and iniquity in 21. Now, each of these words conveys a different aspect about the problem of sin. And we don't have time to go through that tonight. But each of them are very meaningful with regard. They have, bring a little different in, uh, nuance of meaning to the concept of rejection of God and rejection of the will of God. And he says, I haven't done it. Now, if I've sinned, what is my sin? And forgive my sin before I die. That's Job chapter 6 and... Seven. Comment or question before we go tonight? I think so. I think so. Now he's misdirected here. He doesn't understand it properly. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? He feels like, you know, God, 
is harassing me. God is throwing all this on top of me. He's watching every little move I make and, and he's really throwing this down on top of me. But I'll soon be dead and it'll soon be over. And he doesn't really understand what's going on. And I've said that a number of times and I think we need to keep that in front of us because he doesn't have the understanding we have coming from the New Testament. Is God the watcher of men? Absolutely. God knows everything about us. But God is loving and compassionate and considerate and gracious and wants us, wants the best for his people. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt that's true. There's no doubt that's true. He doesn't want to deal with it anymore. You're right. He doesn't want to deal with it anymore. I guess the reason I said that was because of 21, in the last part of 21, for now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I'll not be there. In other words, you know, you won't have me around any longer to do this to. So I looked at it as almost sarcastic to God, but I can see where someone might say, well, he's just throwing in the towel and he's ready to die. And that, of course, is true as well. Some people do that. Yeah. Now, I never blamed God. Some people do, and, but I never did. Now, I've been sick. I had the flu. I've had the flu so bad sometimes. I took the flu shot. I did everything. And, and uh, uh, I kept asking myself, why does this have to happen to me? Now, that's the question I keep asking myself. And we did not that, you know, God, this is your fault. I never thought that. But at the same time, I didn't, you know, man, why do I have to go through this? I've got things I've got to do. And... Uh, but that goes through. I guess that's just a normal thing for us to think that way. Somebody else? Yes, ma'am. I don't know if I would say that. I, I, I see Job maintaining his faith. I don't know that he's afraid he might lose it. I, I don't know that. He, I think he's at the point, if I've sinned, point it out. If I've done wrong, point it out. And I think that may be showing his confidence in his innocence. He's showing confidence that I'm an innocent sufferer here. And again, that's what this book is about. But now I warn you, he says some hard things. And we got them coming up. And so I'm kind of warning you ahead of time. We got some hard things. And you think, you know, I don't think I would have said that, Job. But now, you know. I'm not going through, nor have I gone through the suffering that this man's gone through. Yes, sir. Right. 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 So Job had to sin every single day. Somehow there's some glitch in there that I can't 
Well, I see your point. It, it's not, we're not saying he's perfect. We cannot say that Job is a perfect man. Well, he's saying, yeah, right. He's not, well, I think the way to understand it is I have done nothing to deserve this. I've done nothing to deserve this. Now, his knowledge of right and wrong, obviously God has revealed that. He's, he's revealed that in the patriarchal period. He's revealed those rights and wrongs and that kind of thing. And Job says, I never did that. I never did that. And we're going to go through some sin now that we're not through. We're going to go through, through some sins here. And Job says, yeah, but I never did that. I never did that. So he knew the difference between right and wrong. God had revealed the difference to them with regard to being right and wrong. Was he a perfect man? No, absolutely not. But he would offer those sacrifices, and even for his children, he would offer sacrifices in case they had forgotten or failed to do so. And under that period of time, he could do that. He could do that. So that's probably the best way we can understand the situation. I'm innocent of this. I do not deserve this suffering. And I think I can say that without hesitation. Job didn't deserve this because God said he's an innocent man. He's blameless. Have you considered my servant Job, chapter 1, chapter 2? So it's God's view that he was a blameless character, a blameless person. All right, somebody else. That's a good question. Thank you for that, Rich. Thank you for that. Who else has a comment or question that will help us tonight? All right, you have your questions. Next Wednesday night, we will look at chapter 8. And uh, Bildad is not so long-winded as, as Zophar is. We only have one chapter here in this particular cycle with regard to Bildad. So we'll be able to talk more and I, can, I won't have to summarize so much as I had tonight. Comment or question before we go? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the day and its many blessings. We're thankful for life and health and all that you give us. And we know that all these wonderful blessings have come from you. Forgive us of our sins, Heavenly Father, as we repent of them. Give us strength and courage that we may live for you every single day. Help us by our study of your word and by our learning and growing in faith, which the word produces in our heart. Help us to live with the realization that we walk with you every day. Be with us now, Heavenly Father, as we depart from this place. Give us nights of safety and rest, and may we rise up tomorrow to work for you once again. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for all your many, many blessings. For Jesus Christ, the righteous, who made all this possible for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.